This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, how are you holding up, man? Uh, pretty good. I've been getting out a little more. Um, I've got a tennis hobby going on, and that's been great. I've, met, I've you know, trying to get out and keep moving as much as possible. And I'm going to go in the office, actually, next week for the first time. So my son just started remote kindergarten, and I will tell you that is an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. It's, so let, it, let's talk about this episode of Trillions. Yeah, this is – I can't remember being more excited for an episode than this one, especially because of uh, some recent news. So everybody knows the S&P 500. It is – it's beyond a rock star. It's really kind of the sun that the whole thing revolves around. I mean it's got $11 trillion benchmark to it. Everybody knows it. The media quotes it constantly. It is the, it is the biggest thing out there really – it definitely the most intellectual thing in the passive world, if not the active world. Every active manager is trying to beat it. Everybody's benchmarked to it, etc. So we're going to be able to speak to somebody who basically was the head of the, quote, committee that ran the S&P 500. And the reason this is so interesting is that most indexes have rigid rules, and, and so does the S&P. But unlike other indexes, most of them, the S&P has a committee of humans who can override the rules. And recently, they decided not to add Tesla, which is the top 20 biggest stock. And it's, it, they're going to delay adding it. And it just shows you that humans are essentially in control of this index. And we're going to talk to the man who was the head of the committee for about 15 years. And that uh, somebody is David Blitzer. He's now retired. Uh, but like you mentioned, Eric, he was the head of the S&P index committee from 1995 to 2019, which is an incredible stretch. I mean, he's basically seen it all, and we get to talk to him. Also joining us is going to be Catherine Greifeld, uh, ETF reporter with Bloomberg News. This time on Trillions, the son of the stock solar system. David Blitzer, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Good morning. My pleasure. So I want to ask about the elephant in the room, which Eric mentioned in the intro, but S&P 500, obviously hugely important. The index is just this, this gigantic thing that we all think about and watch constantly. And there was this event recently where the, the index was going to potentially add some new names and one of the big names, Tesla, was excluded, even though it checked all the boxes. Why wasn't it included? Well, exactly why the committee did something in the last few weeks, I don't know. It's I think back to past history and so on. Uh, 
But first, thinking back, there are plenty of times when there are big names or popular names, well-known names, that don't get added the moment they're eligible or something like that. In fact, probably 99% of the time, only the committee knows what is and is not eligible because indices have gotten big and because everybody talks about Tesla. Uh, at least 1,000 people went to their website, downloaded the methodology of the rule book, and checked all the boxes. It's, oh, my gosh. Um, most of the time, you know, there are nine people sitting down at Water Street. Nobody else knows or cares. But I think the real question is, why the rush? Uh, stocks can sit out there. Um, if you add a stock, it gets a little bump for a few weeks, and the bump goes away. And the committee's goal, in, at least in, certainly in the past, because all, all I'm saying is in the past, Committee's goal is to have an index that really is a great measure of the market. The market goes up, the index goes up. Any statistic about the market, you can do the same calculation on the index, and you'll be very close. That's the goal. And so adding a company, you sort of look at the index, look at the market, and say, is there something that's we're not lined up quite right with? And then you also look at what's happening in the market. What's happening in the index um, is some big company going to be acquired six weeks out? We'd rather wait for that one than do it now kind of stuff. So there's no rush. In fact, there's a rule, I think, or there used to be a rule anyhow, it said that you had to have a stock trade for at least 12 months before you even thought about it. Now, Tesla's obviously meets that rule, but there are plenty of other hot stocks over the time when, you know, we waited. We said, oh, we can't do this yet. That's, we're just going to sit tight. I think that's logical. Most people would agree to most of that. But all the other large cap indexes do have Tesla. And is there a fear that there's an assumption that a lot of people just look at the S&P 500 as trying to capture the stock market and the biggest stocks generally? And by not having it month after month, you aren't able to do that when some of your competing indexes do do that because they do have Tesla. Well, certainly most people think the 500 the 500 biggest stocks. And it's not. And a lot of people think that. Um, no, I don't. When it comes to competing, are we doing better, doing worse than, than the competition? Um, it's not been on a single stock basis. One case where it has come up a lot is between the S&P 600, which is run small caps, run by the same committee, and the Russell 2000. And the, one of the big differences there is that for the 600, like the 500, company has to be profitable before it's put in. If it starts losing money later on, it may stay in. Uh, Russell has no profitability rule. And in fact, S&P's analysts have cranked out reports year after year after year pointing out that the 600 does better because of the profits rule, either as a marketing thing or as, as absolutely correct analysts. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. 
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So, David, I want to ask, you know, thinking back on your time on the committee, have there been other cases where maybe you waited a little bit, even though a name was eligible going by the rules, you waited to add it? And I'm curious how that worked out, whether the, the shock or backlash was to the same level that we've seen to Tesla not being included. <laughs> uh, now sitting on the outside, there may be a fair comparison. Uh, the amount of chatter about Tesla is staggering. I, you know, I've gotten calls from people who know I'm not, haven't been on the committee for a year and a half and who barely never call me about stocks. And they say, why didn't they do it? Where's it going? And so on. So there's a huge amount of stuff. The closest analog I can think about uh, was Microsoft. And way back then, Microsoft went public in about 1986. And up until some time in the early 90s, Gates and Allen together owned about 67% of the two-thirds of the stock. And then, in, in fact, for most of the time I was on the committee, if you know, had more than half the stock closely controlled, wasn't eligible. And we got pounded a whole lot about Microsoft because it was as big then as Tesla is now, maybe. And after the fact, we still got... They sold off some stock. We put it in the index. Everybody figured to forget it. And we still got complaints. Why did you add it? And so on. So there have been other big ones. But, um, you know, I guess some of us used to learn to shrug and say, you know, we'll wait till next month or something. That's David, can I ask about the committee? Because there's a question that um, I think is really important. Is the first rule of the committee not to talk about the committee? <laughs> Well, there's really there's an evolution in this. And I was on the committee starting in 1989 and then became chairman in 1995. And the fellow who preceded me as chair stayed on the committee. And um, he's a great guy, very sharp. Like he probably knew more about indices than I did at that moment. And I went to one of the senior executives and I said, now... Now that you, gave, you switched us, what am I supposed to do? Elliot didn't do. And at that time, I was chief economist at SP. And they said, look, you just like you get to talk about the, the economy in the markets and in the press, talk about the index. So my charge was to get out there and yak. That idea has changed over time and roll forward to early 2019. Um, and for a whole lot of reasons, people, the anxiety of the lawyers and regulation and some other things, things had, had shifted. And the idea was that the, the chair of the index committee shouldn't be like a front and center spokesperson. Now, between 95 and 2000, the number of employees probably went up like, uh, 95 had about 25 people in index. And when I left, they had about 600. See, the organization got a little bigger. And instead of one or two spokespeople, we probably had 52 
folks, people. So the index pair would have gotten lost in the crowd. There was a specific decision not to list all the members because early on, probably sometime in the late 90s, Forbes magazine wrote us up. They had a picture taken in this very ornate wood panel dining room. Uh, We used to call it the Supreme Court picture because we looked as as serious as as the classic pictures of the the justices. but the day that story ran, everybody on the committee got identical uh, FedEx packages from various companies that wanted in. So <laughs> at that point, you know, we had one name out, but everybody else got to be anonymous except me. So I got all the FedEx packages and the phone call. That, that's, that's great. I, the Supreme Court visual is perfect because I actually had that metaphor in my next question. How does it work? Um, are you guys in a persistent chat? Is there an email chain or do you physically meet? And what if there's a split vote? What if not everybody agrees? How does that get worked out? Uh, obviously, the test for meeting they had sometime in the last month or two was, was probably on Zoom or on some other thing. And, and we'd been using, for committee meetings, we'd been using a lot of technology over the last five, six, seven years. There are other committees that cover other indices. So we had... We had a committee that covered a lot of indices in Europe that by necessity had half people in, in um, Europe and half in New York. So that was clearly electronic. But the 500 committee, um, you know, up until COVID came along or up and certainly up until I left, um, was everybody sat down in the same room. Every once in a while, somebody would be on the phone because they happened to be traveling or something. But that was, was unusual or rare. Um, and how many people are on it? It varied between, I don't think it was ever less than six, and I don't think it was ever more than ten. And it was just a question of practicality. Um, you know, you had 20 people, you could never get everybody together. And you had less than six. If you lose somebody because it, they're on vacation, it, you're really down low. So it was in that range. But there was no no fixed number of Members. And how did you decide um, when you had different, was it basically a vote? It was, it was typically a vote. Most of the, most of the votes were unanimous or very close to it and so on. There was a, sort of a tradition, which I may be somewhat responsible for. If there was clear disagreement and the discussion was going on and on, uh, my tendency would be to, say, all right, I want to go around the table, which meant everybody everybody had a chance to say their two cents worth. If you didn't want to say anything, you could say, I pass, or you could say, I, I agree with the last guy or something like that. But we didn't want to have a situation where the next day somebody would start screaming, you didn't hear what I had to say. So that was a requirement. Um, to go around the table usually would end up, um, if not unanimous, with a clear majority and so on. And there were some people who just had strong opinions. They knew they weren't going to carry it, but they liked the, they liked the notes to say there was a dissenting vote. So the fact that there's a committee with people making decisions, doesn't that kind of basically make the S&P 500 an active fund? And I'll add, <laughs> I'll add that um, uh, Gunlock uh, at Double Line recently made that point as, as well. So it's not like it's not been said. Well, the, the comment of, like that that I, I 
like the best with and I, the fellow, I think he's still in the game, Bill Miller, who ran a big fund for um, Leg Mason with great performance. I mean, he outperformed the index like 12 out of 13 years or something of that sort. And he wrote to his shareholders one time that the best demonstration of the success of active management was the S&P 500 committee. <laughs> but we weren't trying to be active managers in the sense the committee is not, the goal was not top performance. The goal was a, is an index that represents the market and meets the same statistical rules as the market and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's not to beat the market and not to beat the top performer. And judging a stock is not, do we think the stock is going to go up by at least X percent over the next six months? Judging a stock is, first, does it meet the rules in terms of size and liquidity and profitability and this kind of stuff? And second, looking at the index and looking at the market, where, where is the index not quite aligned to the market and, how, and will this stock improve that, that alignment? Plus, sort of looking at what's happening in the future because the committee tracks announced mergers. So, you know, the committee knows most of the big corporate actions six months into the future because the news is already out there. And it, it's not clairvoyance. It's just reading the newspaper and looking at Bloomberg. The committee gets a little flack for being a human, you know, human management on a passive fund, and it brings up the nothing is passive, which is a decent argument. I mean, there really is nothing truly passive unless you market cap weight the whole entire market. Um, that said, you know, with the Russell, they did a rebalance or a, a, a reconstitution recently, and Beyond Meat, which was this high flying stock, got added to the Russell value, and everybody's like, "How in the heck did that happen?" And that's because they don't have a committee and the rules rule. Um, and Beyond Meat was in, didn't have enough data to use its own PE ratio. So it got put into uh, the packaged goods average PE ratio. In other words, the sector it was in dictated where it got put. And that's just the rule. And they could not change it. And thus, Beyond Meat was a value stock for, for, by Russell standards. Is that why the committee exists? Is that why it was developed in the first place? To have that ability to avoid the rules uh, doing something where it really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I don't know the full history of the committee. I mean, I know who the two or three couple prior chairmen to me were, and I that would take me back to probably the very late 60s, early 70s. But how the committee came to be, I, I honestly don't know. Let me put it this way. I, I wrote the first rules and it was two years after we wrote them before we pu- they were published. So, yeah, early on there was there was tradition. There were there were not rules. Now they're rules, uh, and that kind of thing. But I think in the beginning it was just a sense that this was you had a bunch of people together or the same group every month or, or whatever, and this is this is what you do. And I want to talk a little bit about you started in 1995 as the head of the committee. And in 95, I don't quote me, but passive might have had a 4% market share. I mean, it didn't really. You're generous. Yeah, it was really tiny. I'm in the middle of reading Bogle's last book, and um, he's talking about wait, he had to wait 35 years, really, for passive to get big. You saw it go from really a tiny minority player to a gigantic force. And I just talk a little bit about the, from an index perspective, seeing the funds tracking you get so big and how did it, could you feel the power of the index growing 
from your perspective during that time? I'd add one thing in terms of the dates, and that is the the first U.S. ETF, the State Street 500 ETF, the big spider, I think it was 1993. Um, and part of the growth of indexing and so on uh, is ETFs. And it's ETFs because before that, it was all mutual funds. And you know, if you wanted to buy the Vanguard 500 fund, which was big even in 1993, uh, you had to go to Vanguard. You couldn't call up your broker and say, I want to do this. He might tell you how to, well, he probably wouldn't tell you how to go to Vanguard because he's going to lose the business, but he could. See, ETF suddenly meant that every broker in the United States could put you in an, put you in an ETF. And I think that was part of the change. The other thing that drove it was in the late 90s in the tech boom, you had a period of, of months where the 500 would outperform 98% of the actively managed mutual funds in the United States, which should not happen. I mean, that's this is crazy. But what happened is the tech stock, as the tech bubble exploded, every month they were the biggest gains, and each month they were a bigger share of the index than last month because it's cap-weighted and it, it had an acceleration gimmick built into the cap-weighting. And that's helped put, put everybody on the mat put the index on the map because people would say, what's this thing that beat 98% of everybody? You know, it makes no sense. And then they say, my gosh, it's just an index and um, it's cheap besides. But I, you can't touch this without really complimenting or Jack Bogle. Uh, between the marketing they did and the pricing of their products, and most of all, Jack Bogle himself, he was the most incredible pitchman I, I, you know, I've ever met. And, and I mean that as a great compliment because he was out there all the time beating his drum and telling everybody, you know, buy an index fund and never sell it. Uh, and he did more for the average investor in the United States than anybody probably in modern history or something of that sort. See, he, he deserves a huge amount of credit uh, for the whole index thing. But it did grow, and, um, you know, gradually, I think, starting with the tech boom and then coming out of the tech bust when everybody thought, oh, you know, this is a terrible thing and nobody will buy an index fund ever again. And um, recession of 2001, 2002, the index did very respectively, and um, was off and running at that point, and and so on. There was clearly growing news attention, and uh, CNBC loved to make make excitement about it at the same time, and that helped out, um, and, and it grew. And then indexing overall grew. Not only S and P expanded, and the CI expanded. Russell, which was somewhat different corporate structure at that time began to expand very rapidly. So David, it's interesting to hear you, you know, harken back to the tech boom uh, in the 90s, because the situation that you just described sounds pretty similar to what we're seeing today. You know, you have a handful of huge tech stocks just leading the S&P higher, even without Tesla. And I'm curious whether, you know, you see parallels between that period and now, and whether it gives you any pause about 
market cap weighted indexes because again in this situation it is just you know five to seven stocks powering this index higher well all right one big difference between then and now is that pets.com certainly never made money i mean now this time around the companies are hugely profitable and um, and you know they their growth and their stock prices are are make more sense now than their equivalents of 20 years ago do some of them may still be overpriced, obviously. The B ratios are pretty rich. Um, well, one looks back, the index goes through periods of one sector or another being, you know, being hugely top-heavy. Right before the financial crisis, it was completely top-heavy in financial stocks and so on. Um, I, I think there is some disconnect internal in the market today, and it's what you mentioned, that you've got a handful of stocks, that very high P ratios, very high dragging the index up, and um, the rest of it doesn't do too much. I mean, I think it's something like 50 to 60% of the stocks in the index, um, you know, certainly haven't recovered from the, you know, to their February 2020 highs or something like that. Uh, And if you look, compare the 500 to the equal-weighted version of the 500, the cat-weighted version is rapidly, substantially outperforming now. There were a lot of periods at, from the time we started doing the equal-weighted version, which is about 2002, when the equal-weighted version did much better. And the equal-weighted equal weighted version is a plan value, which is a dirty word this, this year. Mm-hmm. And then I also wanted to sort of piggyback off of Eric's last question. Uh, you know, like he said in the intro, the S&P 500 is sort of the sun around which we all revolve. <laughs> And um, it obviously is a very powerful force, the, the sort of speculation that a stock might get added or removed causes huge moves in the stock price. And just this month, we've seen the, S- the SEC look into an S&P employee for potential insider trading. He might have tipped his friend off that uh, maybe he should put on some options ahead of the rebalance. I'm curious, you know, thinking about the power of indexes and their ability to move the stock market, what do you think of this trend and where do you see it going? I guess, you know, two or three comments. In terms of the power of indices and so on um, and moving stocks, what happens if stock is added to the 500? What our studies and other studies should consistently show is that you know, if a stock gets announced and then five days later it actually goes in the index, it'd be five-day pre-announcement period. If the stock moved, it would take up three or four percent over that five-day period, and then it would give it back in the next two or three weeks. So if you looked at it a month, two months later, it had given back this this gain. It was no sort of permanent gain or something like that. If you wanted to play that, you options were probably the logical thing to do. Um, we were, or I was always concerned about if there was a lasting gain where we like screwing, twisting the stock market somehow. And I never saw any evidence of that. And the other aspect in terms of the, you know, the inside information aspect, which I think is what you're hitting, hitting at. I don't know anything other than what I might've read in the newspaper about the current events. I, I pass on that because I don't have anything really to say about it. What I will say is that uh, 
everybody involved in the indices and S&P as an organization are very, very aware of the sensitivity of the data when it was still confidential, when it hadn't been announced. There were procedures really to protect that in the sense that announcements were made only after the market closed. If they were going to be made, it was always the same time of day. There was no, there was no pre-announcement or hint or anything like that. All the people involved in working in the indices were subject to compliance rules and restrictions. None of us were permitted to own single stocks. Uh, in fact, there was one point when um, I unloaded a whole bunch, a number of stocks, uh, some of which I probably held for 15, 20 years or had inherited from, or something like that. My wife had to do the same thing with a portfolio. Um, they let me, they gave me S&P stock. I, they didn't make me sell that. But other than that, there were restrictions and um, brokerage accounts all sent duplicate statements to S&P. And, and you guys are all familiar with those rules. And that's true of every, every bank and, and probably every journalist organization. And uh, I just want to comment real quick on a lot of the attacks on passive. One of them is, you know, once you get into the S&P 500, you can relax. But I think to your point, yeah, there might be some buying ahead of it, but stocks get killed in, after they're in there. Like GE and Macy's got sold off and then they got kicked out. So I think uh, just looking at some of those cases, you, active players are in control. If anything, the index is, is reacting to that. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. One of the hardest things is to figure out how to, when to get rid of a stock, when to drop it. From the committee's point of view, maybe I'm told that active managers have a bigger problem. They fall in love with the stocks. I don't think the committee falls in love with them, but it is very difficult. Um, you know, if it just missed the rule to get in by a little, you're going to keep it for a while, or how big is too big or something like that. And... Um, some of them come along for other reasons. Um, you've got big company index doing a spinoff, and you look at the spinoff, what's going to be spun, and you say that the spin, it's going to be an S&P 500 company. You know, both the parent and the spin should be in the index. So here's the choice. Um, we announced that we're not adding the spin, and then we come back a couple months later and say, oh, we changed the mind, we put it in. But we turned everybody's account, which is not a nice thing to do. Or we add the spin the same time as the spin happens. Right away, goes in. 
but we don't want to have 501 companies in the index. That's not the name. So we got to chuck somebody out. So at that point, we're going to go look at the, the bottom 15, 20 names and see who's consistently sinking. And, and there's our guy. And, and so, um, so some of the, some of the exits are sort of easy. Some of the exits are very difficult. You know, GE was once, he was once bigger than any of the techs in the United States or than today's techs. And, um, you know, when do you say, uh-uh, that's... So how do you? Uh, you sit there and you agonize over it. The, um, you know, the Dow, the committee for the Dow, which I also chaired, which S&P now runs, has run since 2012, it's harder in the Dow. You know, sometimes at 500, you throw out a stock, everybody forgot it was still around. Don't get that opportunity in the Dow. You drop a stock, everybody knows it right away. I mean, some people can recite all 30 names in the Dow. Uh, nobody can recite all 500 names in the 500. I'm sure of that. Speaking of things not really being passive, the Dow uses price weighting. Um, you know, I get it. The index was designed, you know, back when Grover Cleveland was president and it wasn't really thought to be an investment <laughs> tool. But the DIA has, I don't know, a 15, 20 billion in it. The media keeps quoting it. But price weighting just seems so absurd. You're just weighting it based on the price it is. So Apple has a stock split, goes from the biggest weighting by far to like number 17. Nothing really changed about the value. So, I mean, did when you were running the Dow, did you sort of uh, marvel at how... I don't know, weird that system is and why the media still is like obsessed with the Dow. I was going to ask you guys question. Not <laughs> That's for Katie. No. I don't know either. I don't have a good answer. So don't ask. Uh, well, we, we talked a lot about other versions, you know, well, we took it on in 2012. We took a whole lot about all kinds of changes there is now, I think, a dividend-based index that's based on the Dow, which is probably weighted by dividend dividend yield, I think, that we created. We used to, we, and it's an analyst at S&P who's very much still there. In fact, you probably all talk to him all the time about data. Uh, he set up and runs a cap-weighted version of the Dow sort of under the table or something like that. And... Um, but all of us, including myself, you know, we used to call up and say, you know, will you send me that data? I want to do some stuff with it. We do play around with it and that kind of thing. But um, I, I don't think it's going to change. There's one other price-weighted index I know of, and that's the Nikkei 225. And um, I'm sure there are a lot of people in Tokyo who love it, but mostly they love the topics, which is weighted and done right. You're such an index guy. And I'm wondering... Do you look at other indices, QQQ, for example, and the and Nasdaq 100, and how how does that compete and complement uh, S and P 500 as sort of a measure of American companies? The Nasdaq 100 or the I guess the Qs more than even though the Qs is the the ETF to be technical. That's really a sector oriented index or a sector focused index. You know, we slice the 500 into 11 sectors and do indices in all 11 and all this kind of stuff, too. And I, the only thing I would say is that if somebody came to me and said, I um, um, have a one-index portfolio, I'm in the queues, I'd say, you know, I don't think you really have the market. You've got something else. That's got to be clear. Yeah, one-index portfolio in the 500, I think you have the market and you're done. So, David, I want to quickly ask you one more question on self-indexing. Uh, you know, ETFs 
under huge price pressure. We've seen some of them come out. It hasn't really taken off yet, but we have seen some success stories such as GSLC. It's huge. We featured it on Trillions a few weeks ago. Um, but other than that, you know, you're still seeing big brand index makers really dominating in, in the ETF world. But I'm curious on a longer term time frame, do you think the S&P and the MSCI, for example, could eventually lose business to self-indexing? Well, I think there are two or three things that show up that really get a somewhat restrict and limit self-indexing and that kind of thing. For one thing, there's a huge amount of brand management that's in the in all of this. You know, I'd love to say that 500 is so out there and so widely because it, you know, they think they think we're all geniuses. We were all geniuses or something like that. But it's supporting the brand, managing the brand, keeping the brand out there, making sure people have a lot of respect and faith in the brand. And that's the same thing with any other product. So somebody comes along, Vanguard has an incredible brand name. And Vanguard has, other than the Vanguard 500, you've got to really dig to find out who's doing the index or where the index came from. And, you know, and they have a brand that has the power equivalent to you know, S&P or MSCI or FTSE or somebody else. Uh, but there are very few of those who's got a brand that that kind of, that kind of recognition and that kind of crowd. So, so if you're, um, you know, three guys in a garage or whatever it is putting together an, an ETF, um, you're going to have a, you got to have a brand. If you want to get noticed, you call it the, you know, West side garage index and uh, it's not going to fly. So, Right away, the, the brand barrier. The second thing is scale economies. You know, if you're going to calculate one index and track, let's say I have 500 stocks in it, it's a lot of overhead. You know, three or four guys tracking stocks and a couple of guys running the computer and the hardware and software and everything. To amortize that across one index, your operating expense is going to be, you know, 2%, which you're out of the market at that point. Yeah, S&P, I don't know how many indices we calculate. I don't think anybody can figure it out, but it was clearly a six-figure sum. Every, yeah, every market, market in, in the world, that every equity market the U.S. would let you do business in, we were in. Uh, every stock with a market cap over about 10, 10, 15, $20 million, we were tracking. So the scale economies were, were mind-blowing. You know, we calculated more indices every night than almost anybody else. So obviously the scale economies were great. So that's going to mean that self-indexing, unless you're as big as Vanguard or something like that, it's cheaper to come to S&P or MSCI or Russell and say, uh, will you run this for me? And there's a big custom index business. The third reason that stands out is, um, and this really, the custom index business link really started with investment banks where they hook up some kind of range index and um, they write option on it and they'd sell the options. And so here you got a product that, you know, if the index is more than six, your option pays off. Are you going to trust your friendly investment banker to tell you it was only 5.92 at the settlement date or not? Well, they're all honest, but I wouldn't trust them either. You go to an independent group, I guess in P or, or the rest of us, and say, um, 
you know, calculate it. And so we do, and it, it'll say calculation by standard and force, and that's it. You know, so all of that I think it limits self-indexing. Um, you know, the big guys like Vanguard are still going to be interested in it, and um, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, maybe Invesco, maybe a few other created a price war in this business a few years ago, um, driving down ETF fees. You know, self-indexing isn't worth that much because they've driven down everybody else's fees. At the same time. Um, I, okay, next question, um, which is one that I often ask on Trillions to, to close us out, but I have a better ticker today. But what, but what is your favorite ETF ticker? My favorite ETF ticker? Probably the... Spy the big spider was the first. Of course, it would be. <laughs> okay, so now now I have to ask a new kicker on behalf of my friend Eric. How does Eric get on the committee? <laughs> well, first of all, you have to remember you have to be employed by S and P Global. You have to work work in the index in the index business. You know, S and P Dow Jones indices, the the index division. Um, but more than that, you probably have to have been doing it for at least five, six, seven, eight years or something of that sort. Uh, and I don't remember the exact details, but you know, like any organization, there were standard titles, you know, managing director, director, and so on and so forth. And there was, there was a minimum title that, you know. That probably takes another 10 years. The committee you had to have that title. That was a rule. Um, and then you come to work one day and open your open your locker, and there's like a little pink slip waiting for you, and that's when you know you're in. <laughs> no, it's it's not like the movies, you, is it? You you get you you get probably you get a phone call from the chairman, and then you then there's an email that's sent around to the the, the group that works for the index calculation group, lack of a better term. Um, Hoopa doing this all the time, and all of whom are restricted and in a separate part wing of the office, and so on and so forth. An email would go around to all of them saying, um, "Joe Smith has been added to the 500 committee." And, thank and then everybody starts kissing your butt around the office. Or no, actually, I would say all of the CEOs of the th- th- three thousand stocks that aren't in the S and P 500 start being a lot nicer. FedExing, yeah. Well, there is a rule not to release the names other than the chairperson's name. And I think today, as I understand it, there's a rule that not even to release the name of the chair. And so on. It's fascinating. Anyway, I, I, I really appreciate the insight. Um, we're definitely, I don't know. I mean, the fact that I, I live, eat, and breathe this stuff, and I couldn't tell you one member. It's just weird. <laughs> it's just the most important. <laughs> and they were good. They were successful. They were. <laughs> David Blitzer, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Katie at Kay Greifel. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. 
It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.